0: Relax and get ready to learn. Here's Pat.
1: My name is Pat Iyer. I have the pleasure of bringing to you Nancy Stuck. Nancy is a legal nurse consultant who has current hands-on experience in the emergency department. Her past experience includes riding helicopters with critically ill patients. And the focus today is on the way that the scene is kept safe and what happens when a patient is brought into the emergency department. By the scene, I'm referring to the scene of the accident. As a legal nurse consultant, you are looking at emergency department records. You could be asked to look at rescue squad records and summarize the details of what went on. And it's all at our level, it's all nice and sterile. It's just paper and ink. It's not nice and sterile when Nancy is involved. <laughs> Welcome to the show, first of all, Nancy.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: And Nancy is a member of LNC Success Connection, my coaching program to help individuals who are building their LNC businesses to thrive and survive and strengthen their businesses. If we start first about the scene, Nancy, probably everyone who listens to this has been at some point in their life on a highway and watching the traffic slow down in front of them and realizing that something catastrophic has happened on the other side of the highway. That's immediately what I think of when we talk about the scene. And you're driving and you're looking and you're saying, what, what, what is that? Tell us about some of the risks that occur when somebody's been catastrophically injured or it could even be minor injuries. What are the risks about that scene that we should think about? Well, you pretty much touched on
2: some of it. A lot of it comes from the distracted driver who's trying to go around the scene itself. So you have instances where maybe um, two cars collide. They may even get over to the side of the road, but um, police, fire, rescue squads aren't there yet. So it's not um, sanctioned off anywhere and distracted drivers look and then they end up hitting the cars that are on the side of the road, or maybe in partially in the lane, people may have gotten out of their cars to exchange information, look at the damage that was done, then they're hit. And a lot of it comes down to the distracted drivers who are stopping or slowing down or not slowing down to look at the injuries or to look to see what happened. Mm -hmm. So there's the people who were initially involved in the accident could get hurt again, again, if they're outside the car, now they're hit by somebody who's come by, rescue squads police the firemen they try to set up barriers that's why you'll see like the police cars or the fire trucks parked at angles they're trying to create a safety zone but they've been hit you know for the exact same reasons that when the people are going by trying to look they get distracted and they uh you know veer over a little bit just enough to hit somebody or something else sometimes they hit another car in front of them creating a second
1: accident. <laughs> that innate curiosity that we're talking about can be so destructive in this context.
2: (laughs) It does, it does.
1: Wow. Yeah. Are there any other aspects of scene safety that we should think about?
2: So mostly follow the directions of anybody that's on, you know, in uniform. We've had where, when you land a helicopter, the um, fire department, we'll pick out a safe area for you to land. There's certain qual- uh, qualifications that the landing zone has to have. It has to be a certain size, certain ele- like trees and objects like that have to either be a certain distance away or not above a certain height um, for the pilots to make the landing safely. If it's at nighttime, it has to be well lit. If it's dirt, like say it's on an old dirt field, you think that would be great, but a lot of times what happens is as the helicopter's landing, the blades are spinning, creating an air speed that's the equivalent of a level one hurricane, right? Over 70 miles an hour. So it's blowing anything as it's coming down, it's blowing any loose rocks, dirt out. So it's spraying out at anybody who might be standing there, but in addition, it creates a dust cloud. And so you have you hope that the um, uh, fire department will wet down the area first, because there've been times when it's called a brownout, they start to, pilots start to land, the dust literally blows up and covers the entire windshield and they can't see. So, so from that aspect, the fire department, usually they're well aware of all these things. And so they have to create, they start out making sure that they're creating as safe of a place as possible to land. But some other things that have happened, and it's again back to people who are interested in looking, is they create, you know, they'll create a barrier. People will run through that barrier because they want to come and see what's happening or they want to get next to the helicopter. We have to post in the past, we would post somebody who's close to the tail road or the helicopter. Um, usually it's somebody from the fire department. we like, stand, you know, at a certain distance within the, a half circle of this helicopter tail rotor because people don't realize it's spinning so fast, you don't even see it. You could walk right into it. So, but we've had people run into the scene thinking, I don't know, they wanna get a picture of what's happening or something like that. And they don't realize there's a lot of moving parts on a helicopter besides what's going across the top. So it's a, it's a big deal that the rescue people have to be aware of to make it safe for everybody, for the patient, for the helicopter crews, for the other providers on the scene. And like I said, if it's out on a the road that they're trying to make it as safe as they can so that none of them get injured or get hit by a car.
1: hmm As you talk, I have an image of a photo that I saw years ago of a woman who was on a bike who was hit from behind by a bus. Mm-hmm. And the scene is a photographer, the the scene the photographer caught was of another photographer with his back to the person who took the picture, crouching down and taking a picture of the two rescue squad workers, one on each side of the stretcher, and they're walking towards a helicopter. And it's a beautiful summer day, and the grass is green, and it's such a contrast with the drama just in that instant, catching them loading the patient towards the helicopter. Clearly far away from that rear rotor, but a a respectful distance away. Now that you say that, that the person crouching down taking the picture was nowhere near the helicopter. It was ahead in the scene.
2: Hopefully outside the barrier walls.
1: Yeah, hopefully, hopefully.
2: We've had, they actually had one once where um, the helicopter was starting to land on Interstate 95 which is you know a major thoroughfare and a semi truck driver didn't see the barrier set up and went right through it luckily the other the crew in the helicopter saw it happening yelled at the pilot and the pilot was able to lift because if he if he continued landing that track trailer would have hit the helicopter on its way down Holy cow! yeah so there's a lot it's a high risk place
1: (laughs) That reminds me of a story my husband told me shortly after we got married. He was coming home at dusk on Route 287 in New Jersey, which is a th- three-lane, each-direction highway, and he said a small plane landed on the highway, Wow! and he thought that he was hallucinating. <laughs> he saw these lights coming down, and he's thinking, what in the world is that? And he was far enough away that he could stop, but never... In his lifetime, did he envision that he'd be sharing the highway with an airplane? (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's the best runway in the world if it's not busy.
1: (laughs) If it's not busy and if there's no uh, low bridges made out of stone, which could be a problem, or power lines that might be in the way. I've also thought about securing the scene, Nancy, in terms of something that my father used to terrorize us with kids about, downed electric wires. Mm-hmm. And don't ever get out of your car. If you see a downed electric wire laying on your car because then you form the contact and you get electrocuted, I would think that wires and, and active electric wires would also create a hazard for the scene.
2: It does, and that's an, actually a true statement because even though the wire is down on the ground, it can still be live and you stepping out you won't even have to step on it, stepping near, it could be enough for you to have, get an electrical jolt from it. Um, of course it can also cause fires. So where they land something may, it might uh, cause a fire nearby, which now you have a secondary problem going on. Mm-hmm. They also cause problems for helicopters when they're not down because they have to, you know, there have been reports of helicopters that have run into those wires, you mm. know? So they can be very dangerous things, both when they're in the right place and when they're in the wrong place.
1: Yes. Well, take us now into the ER. We have a person who is being unloaded from an ambulance or a helicopter into the ER bay. And I've been in the Johns Hopkins with my husband when he was having a cardiac cath done. I remember being there for about eight or nine hours and periodically hearing the sound of the helicopter coming down and then code 700 code 700, or some code that was announced to notify people of the arrival of the helicopter. From inside the emergency department, and we are looking at medical records commonly that say trauma team activated or code trauma activated, what does that mean for us as legal nurse consultants when we're reading those medical records?
2: So one of the things you can look at is, was the appropriate code activated? In our facility, we have two trauma codes and it's based on what the, the report that we get from EMS and the symptoms or the severity of the injury that the patient has. So if they're stable, their injuries don't involve like their head or, or they're not bleeding and they have good blood pressure and everything like that, we would call one type of a trauma code. If they're very unstable, if they're unresponsive, if they're not breathing, anything like that, we would call a different level. So you would want to look and see what levels of activation um, was done at that hospital and was at the appropriate level. Although you do have to understand that it's based on the report that's given, and sometimes the patient condition changes after the report's given and there's, I mean, you just have to recognize that as soon as that person comes in, you have to change the level of the code that's put out. So it's not, I'm not saying it's always the fault of the people calling it. There's a lot of moving pieces that go into it, but look at the type of code. Is there more than one code that can be activated? And then who responds to that code? For example, when we call one of the people, when people are stable and we call one type of trauma code, it's the um, trauma team. mostly residents, nurse practitioners, the nurses who show up, if we call the more severe trauma code, the trauma attending and the ER team comes over and there are airway providers. Mm -hmm. So if the appropriate people, was it called so the appropriate people for that level of injury was there? And if not, did they get there quickly? Was it recognized soon? that the inappropriate code was called, or it wasn't inappropriate, it was appropriate for that at the time being, but if there's a change, how quickly did they call the more severe code? If there was a secondary type they call and how quickly did the people respond? So you look at arrival time and then arrival time of each of the main providers.
1: Given all of the things that have to be assessed, you know, one of the arguments that we deal with as legal nurse consultants is I was so busy taking care of the patient, I didn't have a chance to document. Patient care comes first. Right. And unfortunately, that is true. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out after the fact what happened is complicated by all of those missing pieces of information. With the rapidity of actions in the ER, what documentation pieces should we be looking for or what systems should we be looking for that would enable people to do quick checkoffs versus having to write a lot in the midst of this? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. You say, as a legal nurse consultant, but I don't know anything about branding. The idea of promoting myself seems so sleazy. I want to serve people, not sell myself. People use words like branding and unique selling proposition, and I don't know what any of that means. As a clinical nurse, you excelled at your job at benefiting from both training and extensive practice. Now, as an LNC or one who wants to enter this field, you realize that you're in a business and your nursing school or college classes never included those skills that you now most need. I'm Pat Eyer, a legal nurse consultant who started serving attorneys in 1987. I wrote, how to heat a fiery brand for your LNC business, tips to be noticeable. My expertise will give you the information you need to stand out and attract the interest of attorneys you want to serve. That's what branding is, giving people a reason to choose you because they feel you offer something they can't get anywhere else. You'll learn how to define and express your unique identity, the special gift you give your client. Maybe that's exceptional service or dedicated attention to detail, or going above and beyond what the client requests. Once you learn about your gift, your marketing will become much easier and you will use it to tell the world. This is what makes my service special. When you clearly express who you are, you'll attract attorneys for whom price is not an issue because your branding makes it clear that hiring your services will give them exactly what they need. Get your copy of How to Heat a Fiery Brand for Your LNC Business tips to be noticeable at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show.
2: So that's been a actually a little bit of a controversy that has gone on for years. We actually still use paper documentation. The whole hospital is, um, computer, is um, EMRs, mm-hmm. right? Um. We do a few things in the EMR, but we do most of ours on paper. So, you have to look at what system they have, and is any part of that documentation done separately? You know, the, our our paper records do get scanned in, so they do become part of the medical record within the computer. But you can look and see what type of system they have, and is there other documentation that's not included? actually in the computerized records themselves. You always want to look at the vital signs. That's going to tell you a lot of information. However, it might not give you the full picture because you know, I, I, we've even had patients' families say this like the the pulse ox it looks like it's low. Well it is, but it takes somebody to look at it and realize, well the waveform is completely flat. And it says that the patient's heart rate is 20 and the patient's heart rate is really 98. So you know that's an inaccurate reading, but sometimes with computerized systems that gets recorded anyway. So it looks like the pulse ox was low and it wasn't, or vice versa can happen. So you have to also look at the entire picture, what else was going on to help. Does everything make sense? Is this one vital sign really abnormal if everything else is normal or was it perhaps there was something wrong with that vital sign or the way they were checking that vital sign?
1: One of the things that I've discovered in a case that I've been working on is that in order to save the patient data on a vital sign monitor, depending upon the brand, Mm -hmm. the patient's name needs to be entered into the monitor when it's turned on and attached to that patient. And if it is cleared or turned off without the patient's name having been entered, then the data gets wiped out and there's no way to retrieve it. Right. And that becomes an issue in certain types of cases. I'm thinking of this is also a prime temptation in an emergency department, get that patient in, get them hooked up with their leads, get them attached to the vital sign monitor, but did they take the time to put the patient's name in? And sure. does that data simply disappear when the patient's taken off of that monitor?
2: Right, so ours in the emergency room, like I said, it, it doesn't get associated with a name at all. The good thing, so on one hand that seems bad because you know I know upstairs on the floor because I also do rapid response and we ask them to, you can scan the patient's ID bracelet and then with, with a wand and it that then connects that uh, dynamap to the patient's record. And that's all good. But when a patient first comes on, they, they don't have the, they don't have a um, arm bracelet, right? When they're first coming in, it takes a few minutes to get them registered. Yep. So we have our monitors. We've already have them on monitors. We're already checking vital signs. Patients sometimes, you know, you never know what's going to happen to the um the way that they have to register the patient. Sometimes there's a delay in that computer. So we've had patients might be there five or 10 minutes before we um, have an arm bracelet for them. So we can't wait, mm-hmm. to do vital signs and everything, just waiting for the arm bracelet so that we could connect the machine to this particular patient. Mm-hmm. Then in when it's very busy, which is it is in a lot of emergency rooms now, this patient has become stabilized, but your next person's coming in, you're quickly taking that off the stable person, cleaning it very quickly and putting it on the new person. And if you haven't changed the name there, now you have vital signs for this new person might still be connected to the old person's name. So it it can be a tricky situation Mm -hmm. for the nurses to make sure that they have it correctly correlating with the correct patient.
1: Yes. Yeah, I can see how that could happen. Mm-hmm. We've got a person in the emergency room. I'm going to bring you back down <laughs> okay. to that ER. A little nuance, uh, I learned several years ago, it's an emergency department. It's not an emergency room. The emergency room language is archaic because right. rarely do you have a hospital with a single room right. compared to a department. Mm-hmm. I have heard of people whose chests have been opened in the emergency department for emergency thoracostomies before rushing them into the operating room. Tell us about what is that like?
2: So unfortunately, this area I work in in the emergency room is, is for the traumas and the burns. I would say we open a person's chests at least once a week.
0: Sometimes
2: we'll open. I've had in one day, I've had, um, in fact, I've even had two patients with their chest opened at the same time. Um, get several people from the same accident, sometimes completely different things. And the trauma team is going back and forth, opening both people's chests. Um, it's, a, it's an intense situation and you have to really focus on what's happening. Um, the person has obviously has lost their blood pressure. They've lost their pulse. They're unresponsive. Um, hopefully, you know, they've been intubated, but sometimes that surgeon is, is already opening the chest while somebody else is trying to intubate the patient. Once they get it open, they're sucking out, you know, the bloody fluids, trying to find, usually when you open a chest, it's usually from a penetrating wound. It's more rare to open a blunt trauma, like a car accident, um, a fall. They, there are times when they will choose to open the chest, but it's, not as often as a penetrating wound, such as a knife or or a bullet. Um, So what they're doing is they're looking for the hole or they're looking what happened inside. They're literally looking inside the chest. What do we see in here? Where's the blood coming from? What can we temporarily put a couple of stitches in, put something, a clamp, we cross clamp the aorta all the time, trying to find where the bleeding is coming from to get them to the operating room. Mm Um, once you open the left side of the chest, there's a couple of ways they can do it. They can either cut through the ribs on the left side of the chest. Sometimes they, it's very rare that they go down this way, like they go straight down the sternum, like they would for open heart surgery. That's a mo- more controlled environment in the operating room. So they're literally just going in. They're trying to see the heart, that aorta, all the pieces right there to see, can they see a hole? If not now they have to open the right side of the chest. Again, looking, as there holes on that side? Minimally, they're gonna put in a chest tube on the right side to see if there's blood coming out of the right side of the chest. If there is, now again, they have to open the right side to see is there a hole there that they can attach. Um, during this time, you know, obviously they don't have vital signs, but we just opened somebody's chest, uh, what day did I work? Saturday. Um, and they did internal compressions and then the person went into ventricular fibrillation So you have to put the internal paddles on the defibrillator and you put the paddles right on the heart itself and Mm. defibrillated the patient. Now
1: that's dramatic, Nancy. (laughs) It is. And that's not something I've ever seen.
2: (laughs) We do it. I've done chest, internal chest compressions there. You know, you have to be able to, you can't squeeze it like this because the chance of your thumb going through the ventricle is high. So you have to, you have to do this kind of like this motion and squeeze more like this actually. And you're squeezing You really have the heart in your hands and you're squeezing like this um, to try to give it the internal chest compressions while they figure out where the bleeding's coming from and trying to repair a hole.
1: Have you seen people survive after having internal chest compressions? Mm -hmm. Quite a bit.
2: It's all based, you know, what a lot of it's based on is timing. How soon did that person get to us? And then when did the pulse, when did they, so the kind of the guidelines for American College of Surgeons is 15 minutes without a pulse. You can still open a chest 15 minutes. If they've been without a pulse for 15 minutes for a penetrating wound, I think it's 15, maybe a couple of minutes more than that, but only like 10 to 12 minutes for a blunt. Again, because of the type of injury that you're going to find, um, they give a little bit longer because it's, it's, something they can readily fix. If it's from a penetrating wound, we've taken quite, we take quite a few that last person I did take down to the operating room. Um, people have walked out after that. We had a a little young kid, firefighter, first day on the job. So he was, I think he was, I don't know if he's 19, 20, 21, that age range. Um, Standing in a, he was standing in front of a fire truck, and another fire truck didn't see him and backed into him and squished him between the two fire depart, fire trucks. They brought him in. They had were doing CPR. They opened the chest. They couldn't find injury. And like I said, that's a blunt injury, but he was close enough that they chose to open it anyway. The surgeon actually cut away part of the lung right there, and got the got the pulse back. He created the issue. He created the problem with the he solved the problem with the left lung that allowed the blood pressure to come back and got him to the operating room. That kid walked out.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about all the meticulous dissection and the cautery and the draping and the cleaning that goes on in a regular OR. Mm -hmm. Is this procedure that you're describing, opening the chest, is that done without including any of those pieces that I've just described?
2: Um, We usually um, throw betadine, betadine all over the chest. Um, draping is depending on what's going on. Usually they don't have time to do draping It's you squirt betadine all over the chest, try to get the skin a little bit clean. And that scalpel is cutting through immediately. You don't have time to, um, I mean, they still have to look for, you know, if we're putting lap lap pads in, especially if we open the belly at the same time and mm-hmm. you're packing, um, we have, uh, we have, um, radio lap pads so that they can be shown on x-ray but we don't necessarily count them we try to but we don't necessarily count them before they're being pushed in because they're literally just being shoved in as quickly as possible
1: right right and then that would become the responsibility of the OR staff to remove all that at the end of the surgery correct yeah I've seen count sheets you know one of the interesting things about OR cases when there's retained sponges is, right. is the count sheet correct? Was it done at all? And in the situations that you're talking about, I've, I've seen statements that say count sheet not completed due to emergency. Right. Uh, but in other cases, the count sheet is invariably correct even though there is a sponge left behind or an instrument right. left behind. We kind of cynically laugh in legal nurse consulting of, yeah, well, if the count sheet was not correct, we wouldn't have this case because they would have figured out that something was missing, done the x-rays, pulled it out of the patient's belly. Sometimes it's a towel also. Right. Surgeons grab towels from the Mayo table and shove mm-hmm. them to the abdomen and tuck them away in a quarter. And because right. it's not part of the count sheet, well, they go off to the recovery room with the towel still inside. But I digress. <laughs> Your description is is pretty amazing, Nancy. If I think about somebody standing in the ER, watching that type of opening up of the chest in an emergency, somebody's laying there and there's their clothes, there's, there's not draping. It, it's just fresh off-the-cuff surgery. Mm -hmm. That's
2: exactly it. We cut away the clothes, try to avoid any bullet holes or stab holes in the clothing, cut around that, but you try to get that open as much as possible and then, like I said, squirt the betadine on the chest and they're immediately inside.
1: Mm. Any final tips for our legal nurse consultants who are involved in looking at emergency department records when there is this type of significant trauma that we've been talking about?
2: So um, for this particular type of emergency trauma, it's going to be again, um, well, hopefully by this time, but the one the that they've um, triaged to the appropriate place. But you know, you can't if weather is a factor or something like that, sometimes they go to the nearest hospital first and then get transferred to us. So you look at that decision. Why was that decision made? Who made that decision? Once they're in the level one emergency room, hopefully, again, you look at what type of uh, code was called, who showed up, what's the timing of the people who showed up. You know, was anybody delayed for any reason? And then look at. Um, the notes, the notes sometimes, unfortunately a lot of newer nurses uh, don't write as much narrative notes as they used to because everything can be filled in. But in an emergency department, there's a lot that, no matter what type of system you come up with, there's not a good checklist that's going to cover everything that happened. So you'll find that sometimes the emergency uh, nurses are writing more narrative notes and look at the narrative notes to see if it tells the story of what happened. And sometimes you can compare it to, the provider's notes. Mm-hmm. Did everything, did they, or do they match? Do, do not only the times match, but do does the description of what happened, does that, do those match, do the nurse's notes match what the physician's notes?
1: Yes, and that's one of the ways that legal nurse consultants can prove their value to attorneys is that detail-oriented mind to be able to pick up on those discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Nancy, I know that our listener is going to want to know how to reach you to discuss your services, what you can do to assist in the analysis of ER cases, trauma cases. What would be the best way for that connection to take place?
2: I am on LinkedIn, but my email address is nlstuck, so nlstuck, the number three at gmail.com.
1: And I'll stuck 3 at gmail.com yes thank you so much nancy i am in awe quite <laughs> honestly of what it takes to go and walk into the hospital in your shoes and assist with those trauma cases when life is hanging in the balance mm-hmm. and thank that you. person's life's in the hands of capable critically thinking skilled practitioners who are trying to juggle multiple competing priorities.
2: Right.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. For you who's been listening to the show, go to the Apple Store and get the app Expert Edu. That's E-X-P-E-R-T Edu, E-D-U, which is our app for legal nurse consultants and for people interested in writing smoothly for their businesses you can get that from the apple app store and you can also get it from google play if you have an android phone you'll get updated with blogs with videos with podcasts with tips that will help you whether you're a legal nurse consultant or you're interested in writing or maybe both come back next week for a new show new guest and thank you for spending your time with us today. Bye-bye. Bye. My name is Pat Iyer and I've just finished speaking with Becca Swan, who is coming up next as our next Legal Nurse Podcast guest. Becca is based in Florida and shares in her show some of her key transitions in becoming a Legal Nurse Consultant and taking on her first job. Becca, would you tell our viewer What were some of the key points that we covered in your podcast?
0: I would love to. Uh, In this podcast, we talked about how I learned about the LNC profession um, and then how I got my first job. Uh, We talk about that job, my role as an LNC, uh, the transition into one from a bedside nurse and the value of the environment of my first job and helping me learn the field. Um, We go into the types of cases I worked on in that role. and how transitioning from the bedside to an office job is overall. Um, And then we go into what I'm doing now. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Becca. Be sure
1: to catch Becca Swan's podcast. It will inspire you. She went from no knowledge of legal nurse consulting in nursing school to a utilization review job to getting hired in-house by an LNC firm, and getting on-the-spot mentoring from skilled LNCs who took her through her transition to make her an effective legal nurse consultant. I think you'll love hearing her story, so be sure to catch it on Legal Nurse Podcast.
0: Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.